Our passage will be Acts 6, 8 to the end of chapter, to the end of chapter 7. This is a wonderful sermon that um, Stephen preaches. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and, and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The high priest said, are these things so? And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come unto the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nations to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, 
and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers passed away. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose another king over Egypt, who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting him deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him aside, saying, Who made you a judge, a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he had become the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of, of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush? This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me.
from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us For this Moses who was led out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At the time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. It is written in the book of the Proverbs, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in Their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers unto the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently onto heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Let's let's pray. 
Father, we just thank you for this wonderful sermon that your Holy Spirit spoke through your servant, Stephen. And Father, we just pray that you would be with Tom now as he expounds and preaches this message. We pray that our hearts would be open to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. That was heroic. That is uh, the all-time record for the length of a passage that I have preached in 11-plus years. Um, my resolve is that it won't be the longest sermon that I've preached in 11 years. <laughs> this is a magnificent passage, and it is one passage. And it, it, because it's narrative, because it, it presents the way it does, and Stephen gives this marvelous historical overview, you just really have to do it all at once. You have to read through it. Last time, uh, we saw that the apostles in, instructed the congregation of uh, the saints in Jerusalem to select seven godly men whom they, the apostles, then ordained to oversee the distribution of food to needy brothers and sisters uh, in the believing community at Jerusalem. That community, um, in this first of all local churches, had grown from just over a hundred to tens of thousands. And that had seemingly from the, the passages that we've looked at, that happened over a period of no more than weeks. Acts chapter 6 verse 5 revealed the name of the seven men who became then the prototypes for the role of deacon, which would later become formalized in the church. As Luke laid out the list of names for those seven men, uh, he lingered for a moment on the first, and that first one was Stephen. Luke was clearly drawing our special attention to the godly character of the man who would then be in focus for this long passage that would follow. In verse 5, Luke says, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, everything else that we know about this dear man's life is right here in chapters 6 and 7 of Acts, because by the end of chapter 7, Stephen's work on Christ's behalf and Stephen's physical life ended. Now in verse 8, Luke expands on his introduction of the man, Stephen. He says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs, performing great wonders and signs among the people, and the, and the very first thing then that we notice about the activity of Stephen, who had just been appointed to help supervise the distribution of food in the body of Christ, is that he's doing the same work that Peter had done in the preceding chapters. Uh, he was performing miracles, and he was boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, we will very soon see Philip, another of the seven men chosen to distribute food, uh, sent by God as the very first ambassador of Christ to take the gospel of Christ into Samaria. And you remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Samaria was north of of the, the region that, uh, that Jerusalem was in. And so it's really impossible to avoid the conclusion as you work here through these chapters in Acts that God had a, 
a rather broader job description for, uh, in mind for these deacons than the apostles did, right? In the modern church, there is a strong tendency to see evangelism as the work of those whom God has spiritually gifted as evangelists. Uh, we pray for our gifted evangelists. We assume that those who are doing the work of evangelism all over this world have the gift of evangelism. We finance their evangelistic efforts in all those different parts of the world, and we assume that it is not our task to actually do evangelism because we're not the gifted evangelists. But in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul explains why God actually gave spiritually gifted evangelists to the church, that purpose is not so that those men would be the only ones doing evangelism. That purpose is so that through those men, the church would be equipped to do all the work of service. All of the gifts that God gave were so that the church will be, get, will be equipped to do the entire work of service, which includes evangelism. And when you get right down to it, if you look at each of the gifts, each of those gifts are things that are required of all of us in different contexts. But God gives specially gifted people to the church so that the rest of the church will have great examples and, and mentors and instructors for doing those things. So God's purpose is that all of us, all of us will be doing the work of evangelists. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he took these deacons <laughs> and, and began using them in this way. Faithful service that is directed toward the community of the saints to build up the church, like the service for which these seven men were originally chosen, that service toward the church does not in any way preclude service toward the world. A proclamation that is directed toward lost sinners. That's the task of every single one of us. Here in Acts 6, Stephen is the first example we get to see that men other than the 12 apostles of Jesus were empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform signs and wonders. Now, we said before that the miracles that God does through his people have never been intended by God to put an end to illness or poverty or the activity of demons on earth. Jesus will accomplish all of those things when he reconciles the things in heaven with the things on earth and, and, and initiates the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not going to happen yet. The miracles that God does through his people are intended by God to attest, to attest to the God-sourced authority of his messengers and to attest to the truthfulness of the message that they proclaim. For the church, that message is the crucified and resurrected Jesus. As Stephen performed such miracles and boldly proclaimed Christ, some men from a group known as the Synagogue of the Freedmen rose up and argued with him. Luke tells us that these men were, quote, unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Isn't that great? We should not miss that that's exactly what Jesus promised to his disciples. In Luke chapter 21, listen to these three verses. 
They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you into the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Now, don't miss that. Jesus is saying persecution is opportunity for the gospel. And then he says, so make up your minds, resolve in advance not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. What a promise. That doesn't mean that everyone will receive and believe the gospel that we, that we proclaim. But it does mean that every attempt, every attempt that the world makes to prove our words to, to be false will be absolutely futile because you cannot argue your way out of the truth. Gamaliel's warning to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5 hit the nail on the head. Those who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ are fighting against God, not against men. And that's really good news for us, isn't it? When unbelievers oppose us because we are proclaiming Jesus, the one they are actually taking their stand against is the one who made them and everything else. We couldn't possibly be standing on better ground than that in our proclamation of Christ. Now, because the opponents of the gospel cannot discredit our testimony of Jesus through argumentation, even if, they, even if they applaud themselves for doing so when they haven't, because they can't accomplish that, they are forced to resort to far lesser weapons if they want to persist in their opposition. And all of those weapons trace back to one poison root, which is lies. There's this beautiful declaration in Isaiah chapter 5, Verse 18, it says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. That is quite a picture. See, the only way to give energy and motion to sin, to give sin wheels, so to speak, is through falsehood. You have to lie. And since opposition cannot since the, the opposition to the gospel cannot beat us through sound argumentation, we should fully expect them to resort to willful misrepresentation and personal attacks that have zero basis in the truth. And that's exactly what happened here at the end of Acts chapter 6. The Jews, the Jews had the violation of the ninth commandment down to an art. They leveled the same false accusations against Stephen that they had raised against Jesus. They said they had heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They said he incessantly speaks against this holy place, the Jerusalem temple, and the law. Of course, neither Jesus nor Stephen had ever spoken any such thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was as clear as clear gets that that if anyone denies or teaches another person to deny any part of the law, that person will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus declared he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, which he perfectly did. The accusations raised by the Jews here in Acts 6 
did not arise from any honest misunderstanding of Stephen's words or of Jesus' teachings. These were willful, bald-faced lies. But just like Jesus, Stephen presents no defense or vindication of himself. It's, it's, really, it's really very stunning because when the, high, when the accusations are done and the high priest says, are these things true? Stephen doesn't even answer the question. He just launches into his indictment of the court and of the Jews. The last thing that Luke tells us about Stephen's accusers before Stephen responds to them is this. Fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council, the Sanhedrin, saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, when, when I read that, I, I cannot imagine that there were not men on that council who were thinking about Moses, right? Way back in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from his second 40-day face-to-face meeting with Yahweh, with the second set of tablets of the Ten Commandments, the face of Moses shone so brightly with the reflected glory of God that the Israelites were, quote, afraid to come near him. And that same thing happened every time Moses met with God at the tent of meeting. Now the face of this man, Stephen, whom these Jews considered to be of no consequence, appeared to them like the face of an angel. I believe it was the very same reflected glory. All right. Now let's look at Stephen's indictment. This is the largest part of the passage, verse, really verse 2 to 53. Verse 1 is the, is the question from the high priest, are these things true? Which Stephen doesn't answer. Uh, This passage is Stephen's one and only sermon recorded in God's Word, because he dies at the end of it, but it is not a sermon that's intended to build up or to encourage. It is a piercing and condemning indictment from beginning to end. Now, we we will not have time this morning to examine the details of this indictment, although that is very much worth doing. My goal is that we will see the one most, what I believe is the one most essential point and purpose of this lengthy indictment that Stephen levels against the Jews. I, when I first started diving into this passage, I, I was agonizing because I have looked at this passage so many times in my life and, and I've never been able to quite make sense of the selectivity of Stephen's choice of what he included here. This is selective history. And so I prayed and I looked and I prayed and I listened. I went over it dozens of times. And then it, it started to become pretty clear. Uh, and, and I really don't think that God has made it elusive at all. Uh, the focus, I believe, of this historical review has to do with Israel's disowning of every deliverer that God sent to them, leading to their disowning of the perfect deliverer, Jesus. And try to follow me as we walk through this. First, just as Peter did in chapter 3, Stephen goes back to the beginning of Israel's existence as the covenant people of God, starting with Abraham. In this one message, Stephen touches, as Peter did, on the, the key people who were involved in all of the three major covenants that God made with Israel through Abram. The fourth is the new covenant. But 
the covenants that God made with Israel through Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. Stephen covers the entire scope of God's dealings with Israel in history, from God's call to Abram to leave Mesopotamia and come to the land of promise, all the way to God's provision of his own beloved son to be the savior of mankind. But again, this is very selective history. It is history with a definite point. Stephen's sweeping historical review focuses decisively on the Jews' repeated rejection of God's God-sent deliverers. Now again, he begins with the promise given to Abraham. That promise is threefold. People, place, blessing. Or to put it another way, seed, land, and blessing. The seed, an offspring who would descend from Abram to be the people of God. And the perfect, the perfect manifestation of that seed is one person, Jesus The land, a place prepared by God to be the dwelling for that people with God. With Yahweh dwelling right in their midst. And then finally, a blessing, which really comes down to blessed relationship between God and his chosen people. Relationship and communion between God and his people in the place that he's prepared for them. That's the central promise of the Bible. We had a series on that a while back. And the culmination of it is Revelation 21.3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will be their God, and they will be his people, and he himself will dwell among them. All right, Stephen reminds the Jews of God's expansion of that promise that was first presented in Genesis 12. He reminds them of how God expanded on that promise in Genesis 15, where God told Abraham that his descendants would be, quote, aliens in a foreign land and would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But God would judge that nation, and the Israelites would come out and serve Yahweh in the place, the land that God had prepared. That land is really just a picture of the final New Jerusalem. Now, that threefold promise of people, place, and blessed relationship with God was reiterated by God to Abraham's son Isaac, and then to Isaac's son Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. And one of those sons was Joseph. Verse 9 tells us that the patriarchs, who were Joseph's own brothers, uh, were jealous of Joseph. And they disowned Joseph, the very one that God would then use to deliver them, right? Stephen is laying out a, a pattern here. They they. They were jealous of Joseph. They first tried to just do away with him, throwing him in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery, into Egypt. And then God used Joseph to deliver Israel and really all the rest of mankind at that point from a terrible seven-year famine that would have ended God's promise if not for the deliverance God provided through Joseph. Stephen is being very, very strategic here. He's pointing out that the sons of Jacob who became the nation of Israel, disowned their deliverer, their God-sent deliverer. And again, first, this is the first example of a pattern, a pattern that Stephen's audience that he's talking to in this passage had just duplicated at the most grievous level imaginable. After talking about Joseph, Stephen then fast-forwards to Moses, 
And he gives a very brief overview of the events that led to Moses becoming, quote, a man of power in words and deeds in Egypt during the time that Israel was in harsh enslavement in Egypt. Stephen then relates one pivotal incident in Moses' life in Egypt when Moses defended one of his fellow Israelites from an Egyptian taskmaster that was beating him. And very interestingly, in verse 25, Stephen adds an important insight to the account of that event that we don't find in Moses' record of the account in Exodus. And it is that difference, it is that additional bit of information that I believe zeroes in on Stephen's purpose here. In verse 25, Stephen says, And he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. That means that when Moses, after the Egyptian was pounding on this one Jew, that Moses killed the Egyptian, then the, right after that, he, he confronted two Jews that were fighting with each other, and one of them, said, well, you're going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? They repudiated him. They disowned him. And Moses was, at that point, I never knew this, except we wouldn't know this except for this passage. Moses, at that point, thought, well, I thought God put me in this situation so I could be Israel's deliverer. Did you know that? That 40 years before Moses met God in the form of the burning bush, Moses already thought God was going to use him to deliver his people. But his people didn't want it. They didn't want him. They said to Moses, the, two, the, Jew, the Jew that was being hurt, being injured by his neighbor, pushed Moses away and he said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And it was that event that drove Moses to leave Egypt, to flee to the wilderness in Midian, where 40 years later he met the one true God very very face-to-face, -face, if you would. Stephen next relates Moses' encounter with Yahweh in the form of the burning bush at the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 3 that happened 40 years later. In that meeting, God commissioned Moses to act as his instrument to deliver Israel from harsh bondage in Egypt. So now Moses realizes God did, does intend him to be the, the instrument of deliverance. Now listen to these verses I'm about to read from this passage, from Stephen's sermon. In Acts 7.35, Stephen says, This Moses, whom the Israelites, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. And by the way, guys, that angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush was the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Because no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, he has made him known, John 1.18. When men had face-to-face -face encounters with God, that was Jesus that they were meeting with. Okay? A few verses later, in Stephen's sermon in verse 39, Stephen adds that after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and had brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground, their rejection of their God-sent deliverer persisted. He says in verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, but they repudiated him. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They didn't want Moses, they wanted Egypt. 
They didn't want the deliverance that God was providing through Moses. They wanted to go back to the leeks and onions and the bricks that they had no straw to make in Egypt. Between those two verses is a magnificent verse that's it's easy to miss, verse 37, where Stephen connects that deliverer, Moses, whom Israel disowned, with another deliverer whom they would also disown. He says, Moses, this Moses said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And that prophet that Moses was talking about is Jesus. That's promises found in Deuteronomy 18. Moses prophesied Jesus, the perfect prophet who would be the perfect deliverer. Everything Peter has pointed out thus far about Israel's history of rejecting every God-sent deliverer, I believe was purposed to bring them to the most condemning indictment of all. That these men who were seated in judgment of Stephen as he's speaking these words, had disowned, rejected, and murdered the long-promised perfect deliverer sent from heaven to earth, the one and only Savior of Israel and of mankind. Now, please listen carefully to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53 mentioned Moses there. Let's go to that one. Uh, and actually, before I do that, I, this outline point I just threw up here is one I, we simply don't have time to develop. But I want you to look at it because it's part of Peter's sermon. And that is that Israel preferred the work of their own hands to God and his works. There's a discussion about the tabernacle of Moloch and the tabernacle and the temple of God and about the fact that God does not dwell in a temple made with human hands. Spend some time looking at that. Israel didn't like that portion of, of Stephen's indictment any more than they liked the rest. But I want to keep our focus on this. Now, verses 51 to 53, listen to these. This is the pinnacle and the point of Stephen's entire condemning indictment against the men gathered as his accusers in this exalted court, exalted among men. He says, you men are stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. The forefathers of these religious leaders of the Jews throughout their long history from the time they first existed as a people had disowned and rejected every deliverer that God has graciously raised up. They had disowned and rejected the testimony of every prophet who spoke of the coming perfect deliverer, the long-promised Messiah in the line of David the Lord Jesus Christ. And now by rejecting Jesus himself, these men had disowned that greatest deliverer of all, the one whom, <laughs> whom their father sent from heaven to earth to save them from slavery, not to Egypt, but from slavery 
to their own sin and to the curse of that sin so that they could be the true people of God together with all, everywhere, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who trusts in Jesus. And so that they could dwell in the true place prepared by God in perfect, unhindered relationship and communion with God forever. They rejected that deliverer. They had become the betrayers and murderers of the Lord of glory. Verse 54, we begin to see the response uh, and the response to Stephen that results in his execution. Verse 54 says that when the members of the Sanhedrin and their accusers from the synagogue of the freedmen heard Stephen's words, they were, quote, cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They were enraged. They were furious. As they all began taking up stones to kill Stephen, Stephen Luke tells us uh, what, what Stephen was experiencing. And this is, this is magnificent. Verse 55, But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen in, gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. <laughs> when Jesus ascended to heaven, the other accounts that we read of what happened after that is Jesus took his seat at the right hand of God, like in Hebrews 12.2. Why was Jesus standing here? He stood up because he was fixated. Jesus himself was fixated on his servant, Stephen, on what God, what he himself was accomplishing through that man. And it was as if he was saying, okay, Stephen, it's time. You're about to come here where you were created to be. The eyes of Stephen's heart were focused like a laser. And by the way, John, my brother John mentioned that to me this morning, John Hodges, that the standing thing, and it just, it just reinforced this to me. The eyes of Stephen's heart were focused like a laser on the prize, on the one who is the... <laughs> the one who is the beautiful inheritance of every believer in Jesus Christ. Gazing intently into heaven, the true dwelling place of God, not made by human hands, Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. <laughs> the Jewish leaders, upon hearing this, covered their ears. How's that for a, for a coping mechanism? <laughs> they covered their ears. Oh, don't let us hear it. They were trying in panic desperation to block out Stephen's words. What a staggering contrast, guys. The humble, lowly servant describing with his last breaths the very reality that should have been the greatest and most heartfelt longing of every man seated in that court. While those very leaders covered their ears and picked up stones to finish killing Stephen. They rushed upon him with one impulse and they cast stones that were fashioned not by the hands of men, but by the hand of Stephen's God until, until no life was left in his body. 
Luke very strategically points out in 50, verse 58 that as Stephen was being stoned to death, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke is the master of introducing people a little while before he starts to tell us about them. This is his introduction of a man that we know as the Apostle Paul. At this point, that man would soon set a new, set a new standard for the persecution of Christ's church. And very soon after that, he would arguably become the most mightily used ambassador of Christ that the world has ever seen. That man, Saul of Tarsus, would become the Apostle Paul. When we get to Acts 22, we'll see that nearly 30 years later, as Paul was standing before a similar court, he still included his own participation in the murder of, in the murder of God's faithful servant Stephen in his own testimony of God's miraculous work in his own heart. The connection between these two men is mighty. As the life was, <laughs> sorry guys, this passage, I've spent a lot of time in this this week. <laughs> this blows me away. As the life was leaving Stephen's body, <laughs> Stephen called on the Lord and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my soul, receive my spirit. By the way, it is okay to, to pray to Jesus. Then with his very last breath, this first of all deacons in the church of Jesus Christ cried out to, his, to God, his Father, with words of mercy and compassion and forgiveness. We talked about mercy this morning and how, how critical it is. Just as he cried out with words of mercy, compassion, and forgiveness, just as Jesus had done at the cross of our salvation. Stephen said, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. See, that's what happens to believers who die. They fall asleep because they don't stay dead. The one mighty reality that sustained Stephen with great courage and grace and godly compassion for sinners to his very last breath was eyes fixed on the presence and glory of God, who is the destiny and the inheritance of everyone who trusts in Jesus. <laughs> See, when you and I know the end point of our earthly existence, when we have our eyes firmly fixed on that end point that is our living hope of entering into the very presence and glory of God and dwelling with him together with all of his redeemed in the beautiful place that he has prepared for us, when that's where our eyes are fixed, we are freed up. We are freed up to forgive even when we are being grievously harmed and even when we are being killed for the sake of Christ. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, I think of this all the time. Every day that remains to us in this brief mortal life, we are freed up by the same awareness that freed Joseph who was himself disowned and delivered over to death by his own brothers. Joseph's words to his brothers years after they had left him for dead and then sold him into slavery were these, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. (laughs) Before we go home this afternoon, we would do well to very quickly consider how our proclamation of Christ should line up with Stephen's and with Peter's proclamations. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit convicts the world, convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That same Holy Spirit convinces sinners of redemption in Jesus Christ alone. If our gospel does not proclaim all of those realities, it is not the same gospel that Peter and Stephen and the apostles preached and that Jesus preached. Every declaration of the gospel that we've seen thus far in the book of Acts includes a forceful and condemning indictment against the hearers of that proclamation. Our message is not God's message if it does not clearly identify sin as sin and does not clearly declare that that sin condemns every single one of us apart from Christ. Contrary to the notion held by many professing Christians in this present age, there is nothing even remotely loving or gracious about soft-pedaling the gravity and the consequence of sin. In fact, that is the most unloving thing that you could ever do to another person. And like Peter's message and Stephen's message, our message must proclaim Jesus as the one and only Savior of sinners and Lord of lords, promised through all the Old Testament prophets. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name that has been given, no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Back in Acts 5, almost done here, back in Acts 5, the angel who released Peter and the apostles from prison commissioned them saying, go your way, stand immovable and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. That whole message, beloved, is the very worst news about themselves that human beings will ever hear. And it is the very best news about God that human beings will ever hear. About God and his grace towards sinners like us. Every single one of us is commissioned by our great God and Savior to preach that news to our dying breath. Dear Father, make us all courageous, faithful, compassionate servants like Stephen, filled with the heavenly fire of the Holy Spirit to speak the piercing and wonderful truth of Jesus Christ in love to lost sinners no matter what the cost. We ask this in the name and for the sake of Jesus, our wonderful Savior and our glorious Lord. Amen.